This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now, it's time to decentralize. Welcome, for those of you joining us, uh, welcome to TGIF DCT on Clubhouse as well as the Decentralized podcast. Uh, if you're joining us at a later date, for those of you joining us live here on Clubhouse, we gather here every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern time here in the Decentralized Trials Club. If you're new to Club, maybe we're a house now. I think maybe we're a house. I, I've lost track of Clubhouse jargon, but whatever we are, club or house, you are welcome to join us. Um, on the top left of your screen is says in a little font, Decentralized Trials. If you tap that, you can follow or join. Um, and from there, you'll get updates about when we have um, our new shows each Friday. You'll be able to access replays there on the Clubhouse app. And of course, for those of you joining us live, you will become a part of our conversation because after we spend about the first half of our time here with some of our guests on this week's topic, we're going to open up the room and look and listen for your comments, questions, and experiences. If joining us live on Fridays is not your cup of tea or doesn't work for you on any given week, we do make sure that this content is available through all of your favorite podcast platforms on the Decentralized Podcast. If you like Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is, just take a search for Decentralized and DTRA. You'll find us. You can give a follow there. Um, and then uh, you'll always know about if there's additional content we may drop throughout the week. In addition to each episode from that week going live on the podcast, we're also busy taking favorite, most listened to episodes from Clubhouse and moving them over. So that content library just keeps on growing. Now, the topics we cover each week come from you our friends and family in the community. And so if you have a topic you would love to see us cover in the weeks ahead, just drop a message to Jane Miles, Craig Lipset, Amir Kalali, or if you don't know how to find any of us through email, LinkedIn, or Twitter, you can always drop an email to secretariat at dtra.org, which I have a feeling will magically appear in your chat here on Clubhouse. Letting us know what topics you want always keeps things fresh. And even though we've covered so many, we've hardly solved all of these different gaps or challenges or opportunities that exist. Many of our topics hit on themes around the patient, whether experience, access, representation and diversity, site concerns around adoption, policy and regulatory concerns, 
technical concerns around interoperability, data flow, connectivity, real world data, connected devices, the list goes on and on. And so keep letting us know what you'd love to see and hear. And maybe you're gonna wanna step forward, just like our friends, Jonathan and Dylan are doing today to join us and help lead a conversation on one of those many awesome topics. Whew. Amir Kalali, how did I do there? What did I forget? I'm amazed how long you didn't take a breath for. That was pretty <laughs> <incredible>. <laughs> Amen to that. That was incredible. Yeah, and for those of you that know my lung capacity, that's quite a feat. So I'm going to take that as a double win. It sure is. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, yeah, I'm actually what I'm looking forward to is the fact that I'm getting on a plane tomorrow and we'll be seeing Craig, Jane and many others live at DIS. It's always good to see people in person and uh, have a, a drink together and discuss things in person. So I'm excited about that. And with that, I'll, I'll go on mute. So if you are headed over to DIA as well, and you're wondering, where can I see Amir Kalali in person or Jane Miles or even myself? Well, one of the easy ways to do that would be at a session on Tuesday afternoon at 1.15. Um, Tuesday at 1.15 during the DIA, uh, we will be moderating a panel. I get to moderate a panel with a number of fabulous voices. This panel is themed on collaborations and their role in advancing progress with decentralized research. And so for that panel, we will have representation from Transcelerate, from City, from ACRP, from IMI Trials at Home, and of course, DTRA. And together we'll be talking about the types of challenges that each of those initiatives are addressing. What types of solutions and work product are available? How do we avoid redundancy and make sure there are clean handoffs? And what are those gaps that collaborations need to address in the months and weeks ahead? Amir? You know, you just joined my weekend. You reminded me that I'm in the opening panel on AI. So I better look into this AI thing before that little plenary keynote. Right? You know, Amir, you, you just go in ChatGPT or Bard and just, you know, let it take it away, Amir. You, you don't think I'm, I've done that already? <laughs> so that is another great point. In addition to that panel on uh, DCT and collaborations, uh, which I get to moderate together with my friend Jane Miles. Um, and by the way, along with Jane, Kim Hawkins from Sanofi, Rob DeChico at Transcelerate, Susan Landis, Executive Director of ACRP, who was here on our show just last week, and Sarah Calvert from City. Amir, you are doing the opening plenary on Monday morning. I look forward to seeing you there. Any uh, breadcrumbs of what we have to look forward to there? You know, there's really good people that morning, so I think it's, if you're a DIA, it may be worth going to that session for sure. Uh, I think really good uh, people discussing how AI may practically be um, affecting everyone, also some of the ethical issues and just in general what the issues are in life sciences. So I think uh, I think every meeting is going to have a lot of AI in it this year for sure. So, But I think you know we all need to learn more about it, that's for sure as well. One last calendar note, if you are attending, no doubt you have a very full day of sessions, exhibit uh, hall time and evenings full of um, networking and who knows whatever else may be out there. Um, Tuesday at 5.30, uh, if you're a member of the DTRA community, come join us at a, uh, at a, for a cocktail and, uh, and a little bite at the Omni 
directly across the street from the convention center. This is at 5.30, really before your dinners and whatever other evening activities you may have, and right after those uh, sessions wrap up. So you can always come cool off with a cocktail. Uh, check out, um, maybe Paige will drop a, a link in the, in the chat if you're here with us live on Clubhouse, uh, where we have a registration link just to make sure that uh, we can accommodate all the interested friends that will be there. This is really meant for um, folks from member organizations, individual members, and, and other friends that are uh, helping to get things done in the community. Okay, well, Jonathan, I think we still have a couple of minutes here. What would you like to talk about today? No, let me, let me kick off today. So we, we obviously, uh, one of the big things in the news in the world of decentralized over the last month has been the FDA's draft guidance on decentralized clinical trials. And to help us with a conversation on that this week, I'm really thrilled to have two friends joining us today. I'm going to let them come off mute and introduce themselves and maybe what their connection is for today's topic. Jonathan, it's great to have you here. Come on uh, on board, introduce yourself if anyone doesn't know you and uh, share your connection for today. Sure, thanks, Craig. Um, I'm Jonathan Andrus and my day job is as president and COO of Creo, which Creo is a e-source solution, uh, principally built to support clinical research sites uh, around the world for direct collection of data in all facets of data collection, including you know brick and mortar research sites, but home-based, you know nursing and and all all things in between for direct capture of data uh, during patient encounters. My connection with DTRA really started off um, back working on one of the work streams within uh, within DTRA, specifically the uh, Section Four work stream and Four B, uh, and that's how I actually got connected with Dylan, uh, my, my, my uh, compatriot in today's clubhouse, where we were working on, uh, you know, the regulatory hurdles to DCT and identifying those uh, and had a tremendous experience working with, uh, with that work stream and creating some great content um, and being able to conduct some surveys and find out what's going on in industry. And from there, um, as those work streams um, kind of ran down, uh, have now been involved in the regulatory council uh, and looking at uh, and being involved with proactively with uh, ministries of health regulatory agencies uh, around the globe, as well as doing activities like commenting on draft guidances when they're issued and released and providing kind of the, the commentary and feedback uh, from, from a, a group like DTRA back to the agency. Uh, as a collective voice um, for for the industry, so uh, appreciate the opportunity to spend some time here today uh, with all of you. Thanks, Jonathan. It's great to have you here. For those that don't know Jonathan, definitely should give him a follow on LinkedIn. A longtime leader in this field with uh, vast work around clinical technology, and now. Um, uh, helping to lead a, uh, a platform that seems to be beloved by research sites with uh, Creo. So congratulations to that progress there. Jonathan mentions the regulatory forum, which within DTRA is, is, is a, it's, it's like a platform of uh, leaders engaging with regulators around decentralized uh, trials at, at global scale. And so uh, through our regulatory forum, it provides a mechanism for us to 
to be able to ensure our various initiatives have proper regulatory insight and support and that we can proactively engage with regulators around the world, both to share where insights or uh, solutioning are coming within DTRA and our community, as well as to address challenges or unmet needs that they may uh, be curious or exploring. Um, certainly the regulators engage with many different initiatives out there. DTRA is a little unique in that uh, we are focused on decentralized trials and have a very diverse community that we represent that's needed to maintain progress here. So Jonathan, thank you for your contribution there. Absolutely, thank you. And Dylan, the newcomer to Clubhouse with your party horn uh, by your side, uh, welcome. Please introduce yourself for folks that have not had the pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. So I joked when I joined that the, the celebratory banner was because it's a Friday, but I think a better suited reason for the celebratory banner is the fact that the DCT guidance was finally released. You know, I know that for many of us in the field, we had been waiting, you know, three, three years sort of with bated breath to, to see what the FDA finally put forward. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to talking about it today. But I guess taking a couple of steps back, my name is Dylan Bechtel. I work in Janssen's regulatory policy group. And specifically, um, one of my main topics that I focus on is decentralized clinical trials. So over the past, oh, I want to say two years now, you know, this, this regulatory focused work stream that Jonathan and another colleague of ours, Steve Walker from CSL Bearing, helped sort of lead, um, really looked across the broad scope of um, you know, regions and areas where sponsors are attempting to launch decentralized clinical trials. And you know, as it was when we first started taking a look at it, it was really a, a sort of patchwork framework of regulations that sponsors had to navigate. And you know, over the past few months with the EMA position paper and now the FDA draft guidance, I think it's really helpful to see some of these gaps um, you know, start to be addressed. I know that there's still a lot of work left to be done, but you know, for the most part, um, you know, when we talk to members within the regulatory forum and within, you know, our regulatory work stream, we found that it wasn't actually the regulators that were posing the issues to sponsors. Oftentimes, you know, sponsors would go to regulators and get pretty straightforward feedback. So a lot of the issues that we found in our regulatory work stream were more so sponsor hesitations to launch DCTs. So I think, you know, half of the battle I, I view my job with is, you know, obviously shaping and interpreting emerging, emerging regulatory guidances, but it's also demystifying DCTs to my stakeholders at my company and at other companies, you know, around the fact that this is practical, you know, there are some nuances, but, you know, for the most part, we can, we can make this transition and effectively launch high quality decentralized clinical trials. So that's sort of the, the gist of how I ended up here today and really looking forward to talking about the guidance. And I did want to call out that Mr. Walker is here in the clubhouse with us too. So, uh, who is who's the other gentleman that uh, Dylan mentioned as a part of the 4B work stream? So, well, watch out, Mr. Walker. We might just end up pulling you on stage here, kicking and screaming. Certainly, great to have that shout out. Steve is uh, certainly a great leader at CSL and a great asset for so many of the community activities here to make the ecosystem better. Now, Jane, I have 101 questions for, for Dylan and Jonathan regarding the, the draft guidance. Where would you like to get things started this, uh, this morning, this afternoon? Um, well, 
I think we will probably dive into the content that was included, but when we set up the topic, we were also interested in what would you add, or if you had a magic wand, what would you clarify in the guidance as it was published? And to Dylan's point, I think that the most important takeaway is by publishing a guidance, the regulators are sending a clear signal. They're on board with this. Now yeah. we need to know how to operationalize within it. So I'll start there. And I have some ideas, but Jonathan and Dylan, if you could add or change something in the guidance as published, where would you start? You know, I think I have oh, uh, just just very quickly, if I could you know, say, you know, some summarize my magic wand wish list in really two words, it would be patient centricity. And I think, you know, as the guidance is currently written, nearly every single component that we wanted to see addressed is mentioned in one way or another. And certainly we'll get into, you know, areas of needed clarity you know, as the conversation progresses. But I think, you know, if I could add one thing rather than clarify existing elements, it would be, you know, more focus on the patient, the patient journey, and, you know, even the intersection with existing FDA guidance around patient centricity. So I know there's a suite of patient focused drug development um, guidances that have recently been released and other um, sort of patient oriented um, feedback that the FDA has given to sponsors and to industry as a whole around orienting a trial, um, you know, around around patients and the outcomes that matter most to patients. So I think you know, if this is a soup and we have all the ingredients there, the only missing element is that patient component. And that's an interesting call out, Dylan, because we do see other guidance cross-referencing, right, with digital health uh, technologies and the connections that the agency makes there with a, so a, a very strong and clear focus around technology and technology enablement, but interesting not to see those similar types of connection points around other guidance related to the patient, stronger inclusion uh, and reemphasizing that inclusion of patient voice um, in study design planning around these tools. Yeah, and it, it's interesting, Craig, even in the introduction section to the draft guidance document, the third paragraph clearly states, and I think this goes back to Dylan, what you even said, that it's not typically those in the regulatory or health authorities that often cause some of the consternation, I guess, if you will, because in that very sentence, the very first sentence of the third paragraph, it states, FDA's regulatory requirements for investigations of medical products are the same for DCTs and traditional site-based clinical trials, right? So it right out of the gate states that to try and break down that, you know, th that mystification that somehow, some way this is so unique and different, you know, where you're still embracing the principles of good clinical practices and, and doing all those things. So I thought that was a very interesting uh, opening one of the opening statements made there, and I think it, it kind of targets right at something that uh, even Dylan said in, in his opening remarks. Well, and that's and that's a great point for us to you know think through in in practice. Certainly, the expectations and requirements are no different. Our guardrails around patient safety and and data integrity are no different, but. We do acknowledge in both the uh, the European recommendations and in the FDA guidance that 
data acquisition may look different. Um, and we need to still have a certain level of confidence in the integrity of the data agnostic to where it may be collected. And so, Jonathan, is is there more, is it is it just strongly implied and inferred in the draft guidance? Would we need something more specific in there as it relates to uh, qualification and validation of how we're sourcing our data and having the, the type of advance work done to show that our data integrity is no different, whether it's being captured in location A versus location B? Yeah, I mean, I think with regard to the actual use of different tool sets and systems and solutions, I mean, it is pretty clear in the guidance that one has to have, you know, those clearly articulated and indicated within the body of the protocol, as well as, I think importantly, having a detailed data flow diagram and understanding how the data are being captured uh, and managed throughout the course of the study. And they, they reference, right, the use uh, of, of a given data management plan to be able to, to do that. I think with respect to the kind of validity statement, I guess, maybe where, where it talks about the use of inferiority and, and other types of things, I think that's a, an interesting area where I think there's a lot of, when, when asked about magic wand things, right, uh, to talk about what are some of those ideas around how we can go about demonstrating uh, without, you know, or less concern over, right, the use of these different types of tools for the collection outside of a, of a brick and mortar research site where it talks about those validity items. So I think that's an area where people want to understand more around those things. So I think that's an area where there could be some more um, specificity provided. And Dylan, in, in your call out and your observation around um, perhaps a stronger nudge towards patient centricity and um, uh, more focus on the patient and patient journey, what do you think that could look like? How, uh, this is a question in our chat, I'll paraphrase, um, how could the FDA give a more clear nudge towards greater patient centricity in decentralized trials? Yeah, so I, I think as you mentioned, and rightly so, the FDA does a lot of cross-referencing of other existing guidance. Um, you know, throughout, throughout the, the DCT guidance. And, you know, some of these guidance documents that are cross-referenced aren't, aren't necessarily even that established or, you know, um, not necessarily, you know, long-standing guidances. I think specifically about the DHT guidance, which they, they reference and a lot of elements tangentially reference, even if not explicitly called out in the footnote. And the DHT guidance came out in 2021. So I know, you know, there's a suite of patient-focused drug development guidances that I think could potentially be with, uh, within scope and perhaps even adding a section in the guidance, a standalone section on um, the intersection with patient centricity could be helpful where they talk about existing guidances. Um, beyond that, you know, I know from DTRA's point of view and something, you know, we've discussed in the regulatory forum is perhaps sending along the patient journey map that's been created and really just thinking about how the patient experience differs within a decentralized clinical trial compared to a conventional clinical trial. You know, I think oftentimes we sort of conflate a decentralized clinical trial with automatically reducing the burden to a patient. 
you know, they ne won't necessarily ha uh, be having to travel to a trial site. They won't necessarily um, be having to undertake a lot of the the activities that cause significant barriers to participation in conventional clinical trials. However, there's a risk we run with the decentralized clinical trial that we create new burdens on the patients, whether that's, you know, <laughs> giving them multiple DHTs that measure every, you know, every sort of aspect of their movement throughout a day or, you know, really not user-friendly methods for collecting remote data. So I think making that balance and ensuring that just because we're decentralizing and removing one burden, we're not creating another burden. You know, I think callouts like that could be beneficial to work through, you know, not only from the FDA's perspective, but, you know, from the DTRA perspective as well. And thinking about how that intersects with existing resources like the patient journey map. I'm curious, uh, Dylan, Jonathan, did either of you find any unexpected surprises, anything in the FDA's draft guidance that that you weren't anticipating and or or maybe emphasized even louder than you than you otherwise might have expected? So Jonathan already touched on this, and I'm sure we could we could talk about this at length, but I think the call out around non-inferiority versus superiority studies, at least to me, the first time I read it was a bit surprising. And I think, you know, from a sponsor perspective, and, you know, I, I feel comfortable speaking on behalf of all of industry here, you know, we're very risk averse in regards to data quality. And, um, you know, we want to ensure the highest um, highest quality data is collected, whether in a conventional um, clinical trial or decentralized one. And this distinction, um, you know, mentioned between, you know, the suitability of a DCT for non-inferiority, I think causes a bit more hesitation because, you know, it, it, it seems as if there are questions around this data variability from a regulator perspective. So I think finding a way to sort of address some of those hesitations that, that may or may not exist from a regulator perspective would be helpful. And, you know, at, at least in my first read of the guidance, that that was one of the you know major surprises that um, you know sort of caught my attention. I'm going to pile onto that if I can, just for a sec, because I agree with your your statement, Dylan. It surprised me, and I'm going further. I was also a little bit concerned about the call out that. By using HCPs, you could add more variability into the data. I get that, but I, it, it sort of is one of the reasons we're trying to do DCTs. So we don't want to compromise the data, but I also kind of took exception to the assumption that HCPs would somehow impact data quality. That's more of a personal opinion. Right. And, and I think kind of building off of that, Jane, um, I'm not sure who on this particular clubhouse was able to listen to the FDA's uh, webinar that they just hosted just a, just a couple of days ago. Um, but that was one of the, the, the things that during the question and answer period that came up quite frequently and some of the confusion, if you will, around the task log and the HCP and the lack of required training on the protocol uh, and just some of those topics that I think, you know, I, I think if you're going to be using other um, other individuals involved uh, in the in the conduct of the research study, that if you're expecting them to collect data based upon the protocol, 
I think there is an element of understanding of those data elements and those data requirements, which I think then, Jane, probably would drive towards the fact that that shouldn't impact, right? If, if they truly are knowledgeable about some of the elements that are required for what they're collecting for that. And again, it, obviously it depends on the nature of uh, what study elements they're collecting at this healthcare you know, practitioners or providers location. Um, but I think that there is, I mean, there were multiple questions that came up for those of you who, who, who participate or heard or participated in that. That was a frequent occurrence that came up time and time again around how to kind of weave and, and mesh that into the overall study design, um, which I think again comes down to some of that PI oversight and understanding of those things to make sure that those others participating in it are, you know, are knowledgeable, uh, you know, to a certain level around the aspects of data collection required for that particular clinical trial. And I think that that would, you know, in my opinion, serve towards reducing some of those anxieties or concerns over that. Yeah, there's a little narrow path here. I get that. Like, yes, you didn't need protocol specific training as the healthcare practitioner to provide this data point because it's part of your standard practice. However, the requirements around data collection, the timing, where it goes, et cetera, that may be something you have to communicate really clearly about so we have common expectations on data quality, timing, and um, reporting. Yes. So, yep. you know, a couple of interesting thoughts here. I was, I was just on a call on this one with uh, FDA and ASCO this morning, and it's, it is fun to think about almost three tiers right now, right? We have one tier of tasks and activities are clearly study-specific. It's special procedures, it's special activities that require special training, and that needs to be the investigator, the site staff, or a delegation of authority um, with support and oversight um, and, and uh, emphasis on support with the investigator involved. Way at the other end of the spectrum are completely routine care activities, things that are on the schedule and the way that a provider would ordinarily provide care. Um, that might even be routine care chemo involved in an oncology trial that's following the routine dosing schedule, the routine schedule. And then there are probably a whole lot of things that fall in between that are maybe a routine care activity, but with something, an additional view of that MRI, um, maybe an additional tube that you don't always capture. Maybe it's at a different frequency than you might have otherwise done. You know, and, and I think that those are the cases that are ambiguous that we have to understand and explore. And in many cases, sponsors may have to talk to their uh, to the regulators about when they're planning and designing that study um, and, and to be able to understand whether that's appropriate for an HCP to be able to provide and, and support. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a little less concerned about straight up data acquisition because the HCPs shouldn't be in the data collecting business. Um, I, I, for one, and we've talked about this here on the show, I like the idea of investigators participating over video. Um, if there's data to be collected, the investigator and their team should be collecting data for the study, it, you know, unless this is something that we're looking to source from an existing EHR or other real world data system because we're tokenizing and that's the strategy for that data element. Um, 
you know, the HCPs to me should be providing routine care activities, but data for the study should be collected by study staff who are trained in, in proper collecting of data, um, including whether that's by video. That That's just my two cents. I wouldn't say that's an official position of anyone other than myself. So um, let me be a bit provocative as I sometimes am. Um, so Dylan, I'm going to uh, take on your comments. Um, first of all, I think it's, we must have improved somewhat if we have someone from pharma calling out FDA for not being patient-centric enough, considering really we're not very patient-centric in pharma, right? So we've obviously moved along, which is great. Um, and, and, you know, you're, you have a lot of experience being in the regulatory group and looking at lots of guidances. So I do want to go a little bit back to 101 because I can't assume everyone here is as knowledgeable about this jargon as, you know, I think the very educated crowd I can see. But just in case, I mean, can you then tell us what, what exactly is it, first of all, the FDA tries to achieve with uh, guidances, right? Do we need FDA to tell us to be patient-centric? Um, and just what do you think about that? Just to start there, just to push back on you a little bit. Yeah, so I guess <laughs> the the first question, you know, what does FDA try to achieve with guidance? You know, the way I see guidance is it represents FDA's best thinking on, you know, either an established or sometimes an emerging topic at a given point in time. And, you know, I guess, I guess this is like, if this is regulatory policy 101, this is regulatory policy 201, you know, FDA guidance doesn't necessarily come just from the FDA. You know, there's a, a legislative vehicle called PDUFA in which, um, you know, industry and FDA will sort of brainstorm together about emerging topics that, you know, they'd like to see covered. And, you know, I think you have a, a great point, Amir. For, for a long time, the industry wasn't necessarily patient-centric. However, in recent PDUFA cycles, you know, there's been a stronger call-out and a stronger emphasis to focus on outcomes and metrics that matter the most to patients. So, you know, aligned with that were these series of patient-focused drug development guidances that, um, you know, have recently been released that I think could have some good intersection with that. But even moving beyond, you know, uh, the PFDD guidances, you know, another guidance that, you know, is mentioned in the introduction of the DCT guidance, and I think plays a critical, critical part, is the intersection with the diversity plan guidance. So when talking about patient centricity, you know, it, it moves beyond just orienting a trial to focus on a single patient. You know, decentralized clinical trials have the opportunity to really reduce a lot of study barriers that have kept, you know, a number of patient populations from historically underrepresented groups out of clinical trials for a long time. You know, so the way I see this DCT guidance is it doesn't necessarily exist in a vacuum. You know, it, it calls out certain guidances like DHT, Part 11, but it's almost a continuation of COVID guidance. And certainly it goes hand in hand with the diversity action plan guidance. So I, I think that when we consider guidance and we consider, say, for example, patient centricity, you know, we need to consider the whole suite of patient centricity, whether that's the diversity of the patient population, specific guidance around patient-focused drug development, or even, you know, more tangentially related subjects like digital health technologies for remote data acquisition. So, you know, I, I think there are a number of guidances, but to, to circle back to your question, the call out around patient centricity really goes back to, you know, an industry and FDA initiative in recent years to have trials be more designed in a more patient centric manner. 
so I hope that that helps a bit. Uh, I love that answer, though, and thank you. I really appreciate uh, digging into that a bit more. Thank you. We are just past our halfway point, and so we're a little late in, in making sure that the folks that are joining us here live in Clubhouse know that we want to hear from you, too. Take advantage of the hand-raising button at the bottom right of your screen if you're here with us live. Raise your hand. Let us know your thoughts, opinions, questions on today's topics, your own experiences, or your own perspective on the draft guidance. I've also dropped a couple of interesting links out there for you. At the top of your screen is a link to the uh, to the draft guidance itself. In the chat, uh, Jonathan had mentioned the FDA's webinar. I did drop a link to the video for the FDA's webinar, as well as to the slides that were used for them from that webinar. Um, final note in our chat, uh, you'll also find the link there for those who may be attending D DIA's meeting and want to join the meetup that we're having Tuesday evening at 530. Give a click over there. And if you want to add our panel session to your schedule on Tuesday at 115, if you're attending, there's a link over there as well. Um, we have our first brave veteran of Clubhouse and TGIF DCT. Welcome back, Shalon. For those that have not had the pleasure, please feel free to introduce yourself. Great. Um, can someone just confirm you hear me? Confirmed. All right, cool. So I'm Shalon Big. I'm a medical oncologist, um, and um, I think a lot about applying decentralized clinical trial tools to oncology studies. I am the VP for oncology at Science37. I just wanted to chime in and underscore Craig's point on data acquisition at HCP's offices, because I think the application for, for that in oncology is very unique and it doesn't really translate to many other therapeutic areas. And I think about it as a, uh, as, as clear guidance that helps those writing protocols really think about what they want on their control arms. Uh, one of the barriers in clinical trial access in oncology is if someone is randomized to standard of care, they still need to keep going to this, the, the research site to get their standard of care. That can mean, you know, two or three hour drive sometimes. So for the right endpoint, for the right situation, for the right drugs where the uh, dose modifications can all be on label, um, this clarification can be very liberating for those who are writing um, protocols so they can rely on primary oncologists to manage the uh, standard of care adjustments and we can passively then collect the uh, oncologic outcomes uh, in a remote manner and follow up on any adverse events that need further details. Being important, the important point being not relying on the primary oncologist to do any research related procedure as long as it's all what they would have done for the patient. So I think that was something which was compelling for me to see. Um, second observation was how the guidance is asking those who are writing the paper, the, the protocol to put in some thought on what can be done in a decentralized way or not. So there is some responsibility on the sponsors to document this in protocols. And we've started to see some sponsors adopt that in their protocols and the schedule of assessments and have a separate section on DCT uh, and what's acceptable, what's not. So that's very positive. But there's also work that the sites need to do as we think about um, the application of DCT 
tools on um, on on hybrid studies uh, where sponsors and so where, where sites will start developing SOPs on what are their methods for demonstrating PI oversight on activities that are beyond their location. So I think that area will probably grow quite a bit. And then I have a question for um, for Jonathan and Dylan is, I thought a very compelling stance, I don't know if other people read it the same way, is the FD actually went ahead and said, blah, 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 should not be on the 1572. And I thought that was rather brave. And I didn't know if that was a uh, a nudge, um, you know, uh, for in, in, in one direction or the other. And I'm wondering if in your ecosystems that was perceived uh, in any way and whether that's going to change sponsors or or in other cases, CROs or sites perspectives on what should or should not go on 1572s, because that's been a sticky point in oncology studies. So just to clarify, I think the, the example you brought up at the beginning of your your point about the primary oncologist um, not being on a 1572, I think it's it's really good that they call that out as well. Because um, up until this point, I think there was just so much hesitation from a sponsor perspective around 1572. And I remember, um, you know, in, in a previous role at a previous company, you know, th there were even questions about, you know, what if the primary uh, oncologist you know, wants to sit in on a telemedicine visit and wants to listen in, but, you know, they're not the clinical oncologist listed on the 1572. How do we document that? You know, something as simple as that, that, you know, would, would make the patient more comfortable having their primary oncologist on the call. You know, I think this guidance um, really does sort of help delineate, you know, the third tier that Craig brought up about, you know, individuals who absolutely do not need to be on the 1572. So, to that point, I think it, it does provide some helpful guidance there. You know, with the RSA uh, call, Shalon, I think you might have even been on this call that the FDA and ASCO had hosted um, listening to uh, folks' utilization of the 1572 in this regard. And I think one of the one of the takeaways that so many there found fascinating is how some sponsors are using the 1572 so far beyond its intended use in terms of tracking so many other data points and attributes. On a follow-up call recently, the FDA had taken a deeper dive looking at sponsor-by-sponsor um, sponsor for oncology studies, study-by-study. Study. Are there any trends there in how organizations are using the 1572? And one interesting takeaway that was noticed is there's no consistency on a sponsor by sponsor basis. It seemed that even within a particular sponsor, if there were five different oncology submissions, some were using a 1572 in some way and some were using it in a different way, which almost suggests that there's not an enterprise process or SOP or um, requirement in the company, but there's just a lot of subjectivity and interpretation on a study by study basis. Jane? So, thanks for bringing that up. We actually talked about that in our 1572 collab team this morning. And I just got to poll people, do you have an SOB on this or not? Um, it turns out this is actually too weedy to go into an SOP, so we'll call it something different. But many of these orgs don't have what I'd call is a job aid on how exactly to navigate what needs to go where and who fits in which part of the forms. 
That's a great call out. Now, Jane, it sounds like uh, either you're flying a plane or being chased by an airplane, but um, you mentioned a 1572 collab. What is a 1572 collab? Well, it's a group of brave people who have decided to roll up their sleeves and try to make sense of how exactly do you navigate the regulatory document completion setting in a DCT study. And Dylan's one of those people, so thank you very much. Um, and it's been really interesting. For instance, this morning we were talking about whether there was a possibility to include the DOA and the task log in a single form. That was sort of our little um, magic wand wish list. So we're going to experiment with that. We don't know if it's possible and what you would have to add and if it's yeah. just too complicated. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a magic wand item for sure, not only based on what was written in the draft guidance, but, uh, you know, again, a whole host of the questions that came up during the FDA webinar about about all of those topics. So it's definitely an interesting uh, perspective to, to merge those together. No, it's a great point, right? And for those that, you know, are trying to keep track of their acronyms and are maybe newer to this space, DOA, a delegation of authority, is is a document that's been with us for some time, um, used uh, with an investigator when there's another party that will be performing tasks that are um, typically meant to be managed by the investigator. A common example would be with visiting nurses that may be contracted to go out into patients' homes, but certainly many others. The task log is seemingly something that feels a little new and different. Mentioned in the FDA's draft guidance around decentralized with the note that your HCPs, those community physicians or other healthcare providers that are performing routine activities, don't mark them down on your 1572, put them in a task log. Well, what's a task log? Is that a new type of document? Do we really need another new document? Could it be captured together with information maybe we're already collecting, but not put in a way that maybe starts to create lots of additional, well, how do we do this in a way that minimizes overhead and work for, for different stakeholders, I guess, is kind of the big theme. Yeah, so I'll add another really tiny magic wand wish. But the guidance as we read it says you are meant to sign the task log as the PI every time there's a change. That, that seems like it might get onerous. So that might be something we ask questions about. You're absolutely correct, and uh, I think it could indeed become onerous depending on, you know, the potential change in in resources. And I think, you know, there's a lot of question about how specific does it need to be? Is it a particular institution that might be doing something as opposed to a named individual or a named uh, physician, if you will? Um, so I think that there is certainly some commentary that needs to go back as a part of this draft guidance review process. And that is the beauty of a comment period. Yeah. So it's a, it's a great thing that, you know, that the agency takes this approach and now takes a step back to listen. Um, certainly many organizations sponsor health systems, tech companies, uh, and others are busily uh, preparing responses. 
Uh, the end of that comment period is October, uh, August, August 1st of 23. So be sure in taking advantage of July, many collaborations will be uh, submitting responses on behalf of their community, including DTRA. So if you're a member of DTRA and want to share your perspective, uh, we've had a couple of different uh, surveys and invitations out there, but if you missed them and you're interested, secretariat at DTRA.org. Um, one footnote uh, in mid-July, if you are from another collaboration working on a response, we do have a call uh, in the middle of July that we're coordinating with a number of other initiatives. Not that groups have to harmonize their responses to the agency, but in areas where groups are coming back with similar asks, just ways that we can try to use similar language so that we make it easier on the folks at the FDA that they are hearing uh, the same message being amplified rather than for them to have to try and interpret that two groups as different words mean the same thing. Jonathan? I, I would also say that uh, on behalf of Dr. Sachs and Robinson and Grandietti and some others, um, they don't only want to hear all the negative feedback, they'd also like to hear any positive feedback as well on their on their draft guidance documents. Um, that was said to me in a recent conference where I was hosting in like a regulatory fireside chat that um, they're, they're, they're used to only getting all the negativity, but uh, certainly any areas that, that are a shout out or a kudo to anything that they've done. So regardless of how you submit your comments or engage with this draft guidance, um, you know, be sure to also point out the areas that are, and we've already mentioned some here already today. Yeah, I think that's a really important call out. And, you know, I, I, I feel like this conversation really honed in on my one negative, <laughs> or not even negative, but area for opportunity around patient centricity and patient engagement. All in all, I think this guidance is a wonderful starting point for industry um, and for the entire ecosystem as a whole. You know, it really does seem to cover most of the components that, you know, were these unanswered questions for sponsors looking to operationalize a DCT. You know, everything is, is addressed in one way or another. And, you know, certainly we'll need, you know, uh, some clarification. I know, you know, judging off of the webinar yesterday, the FDA or the webinar they held earlier this week, there's still, you know, questions about 1572. I think that's an evergreen question in DCT. You know, there are things to clarify, but, you know, this is a wonderful starting point. So I think we have a lot to, to build on and, you know, it's it's a great sort of first step. You know, it's such a great point, you know, with, uh, with, without removing regulatory ambiguity, is, is it going to address everything? Of course not. It's a guidance document, folks, right? This is not, this is not your, your set of SOPs. This is guidance from the end for the industry from the FDA, but it certainly removes a substantial amount of ambiguity, starting with, I think it was Dillian that raised right at the outset, um, how will regulators view these approaches outside of the pandemic? And so, uh, you know, when we had Leonard Sachs and, um, and, and Dita Christensen from uh, EMA, from uh, 
from the Danish authorities uh, back in November at the DTRA annual meeting. Um, that was such an important signal that they were busy trying to communicate. Uh, DITA was able to promise a Christmas gift of their recommendations from EMA. Leonard made no such promise in terms of the seasonality of his guidance, but hey, it's a Flag Day gift, so we'll take it for what it is. And just grateful, you're absolutely right that the, uh, the agencies have been able to push these through. Jane, uh, what other questions are, are cooking on your mind on the topic this week? Hmm. Um, I think there are still some things we'd like to sort out on PI oversight expectations. And if I had a magic wand, I would remove the requirement for a physical location for audit, but I don't have the magic wand. And the reason for that is not because I don't think the data should be available for audit, but maybe I'm too aspirational, expecting that most of it is digitized and therefore accessible to an auditor, regardless of location. That's a great point. I know organizations that have been listing WeWorks as a, as a location today because everything's in the cloud. It doesn't really matter. All people really seem to want is, is a conference room table and a cup of coffee and a good internet connection to find the data and, and information where it's needed, especially as more procedures may be done in, in different locations. Shalon, I'm sure this is a, a question that your model has been grappling with for some time. We may have lost Shalon. So I'll, I'll just drop that on his shoulders for the next time we have him on. I'm here. I, I agree. Um, and, and, and we've, we've talked about how to handle those in, in situations of, of audits. And Jonathan, were you going to jump in on other, uh, whether that topic or other magic wand items on your <laughs> wish list? No, I was going to comment uh, kind of in, in keeping with what, Jane was sharing or starting with, and what you were mentioning to, to Shalon as well, just the, the physical location uh, item, which I, I found interesting um, with respect to that. But I did, I did want to, you know, I, I think the draft guidance does make it clear. I know, Jane, you had expressed some concern over the task log needing to be dated and signed by the PI when initially created and updated when new local HCPs are added. I mean, it does talk about, um, you know, the, the varied named and affiliations of those local HCPs. So um, I think I misspoke earlier when I thought I said that it was only for affiliation. So uh, to your point, that could be certainly an area that could become quite quite unruly to, to manage potentially um, as different parties or players are involved in that. Um, there were also questions asked during the webinar too about the use of the mobile research nurses. Um, uh, the the responses that was the response that was given from the agency representative um, wasn't necessarily direct to the to the question and it and it kind of left I think continued question about uh, about that as well because they had asked about whether or not the HCP um, should be listed on the delegation of authority but not the HCP but the mobile research nurse and and it was kind of responded to more in in terms of it being uh, a local HCP, but I think there are models, right, where there are mobile research nurses that are used uh, as an extension of the of the research site to do some of those at home activities. And so I think clearly some more and further clarity around that too would be would be top of mind as well in in the comments. 
Jane, I feel like we're about to get back to your <laughs> your favorite example of listing the VIN number of a mobile nurse on the fifteen seventy two. So I think I think at least we are hopefully have enough clarity to no longer have to list VIN numbers when we're <laughs> when talking about mobile and home health nurses. Um, yeah, I, on the webinar, I think it was mentioned that you know you can put down institutions. Um, another important point that you know it's not clarified in the guidance it was mentioned on the webinar and hopefully will be clarified in the final guidance is that when it talks about trial personnel being able to be interviewed at this physical location um on the webinar they mentioned that you know um remote interviews and inspections could be could be warranted so you know, i think there is more flexibility sure. but yeah i i agree um we'll have to get some clarity around physical location No shortage of opportunity there. Well, look, we're, we're wrapping up here. I'm just taking a quick look to see if we lost anything in the, uh, in the chat. Um, but I think we've got everything here in terms of the conversation. Hopefully folks are finding some of these links and resources useful. Remember, if you are free on Fridays at 12 Eastern, always welcome to join us here live on TGIF DCT on Clubhouse. You participate in the chat, jump on the stage like Shalon did, did here uh, this week, and we're always glad to have him here. Um, if you are asynchronous and joining us live doesn't work for the time slot, that's okay. Be sure to click and follow the decentralized podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Those replays drop within just a couple of days of our live episodes. We're busy adding past content as well. Just a quick reminder, many folks here will be at the DIA. Hopefully we'll see you there in Boston next week. If not, please stay connected with us. We will not be live next Friday uh, because so many folks here in the U.S. seem to uh, seem to be ready to head off for their barbecues or beach weekends or just getting offline. So June 30th as a program note, we'll be uh, dropping some past episodes instead. We'll pick things up here again on Friday, July 7th with our next live gathering. If you have topics you'd love to see us cover, keep letting us know. Drop those messages to Jane, myself, Amir, or secretariat at DTRA.org. Amir, any final notes before you pack your bag and head for the plane? Or, or did you already pack your bag and head for the plane? Oh, no, I'm all right here. So, uh, no, looking forward to seeing everyone next week. And, Jen, I want to see what you're wearing for your creative black tie on Tuesday night. It's not going to be that creative. I think I'll disappoint you. <laughs> you never disappoint me, Jane. Um, my, my creative garb on a Tuesday night in Boston will probably be a Red Sox shirt, and that's about it. Um, well, and shorts. Don't worry, everyone. Um, <laughs> Jonathan, Dylan, thank you so much for setting up our topic this week. And more important, thanks for your leadership and bringing voice and conversation um, and transparency around what's working and where there are opportunities around this guidance and so many other engagements we have with regulators. I appreciate your shout out to um, others in the community, um, Roska, Genentech, Steve at CSL, so many others uh, from the team that are uh, keeping this dialogue going, responses happening, folks connected. But thank you again for sharing with us this last hour.